helping clients meet their financial goals and prepare for the future. Schroders actively and responsibly manages investments. The world is forever changing, and we understand the need to adapt and evolve in line with what matters most to our clients. Hello, my name is John Schaefer, and welcome to the CityWire Wealth Manager podcast. Today I spoke with Merck Mercuridis, who claims that hit songs are a reliable income stream with no correlation to other asset classes. The ex-Elton John and Beyonce manager runs the Hypnosis Song Investment Trust, which last month surpassed a 1 billion market cap valuation. Merck has recently bought up the back catalogues of artists as diverse as Blondie, Wu-Tang Klang and Barry Manilow. The Song Fund also owns a stake in individual hits such as Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, Journeys Don't Stop Believing and Justin Timberlake's Sexy Back. He's managed to capture interest from institutional investors, with the likes of Aviva, Quilter and Investec buying into the strategy. A more surprising investor, however, is the Church of England. So, Mark, thank you so much for, for coming onto the podcast today. Um, maybe we could kick off by, by why you think songs are a, a good investment, because perhaps to, to some of our, our audience there, they are a bit bit of a niche and, and, and a bit left field. Why do you think they are such a great investment? Well, I think the first and most important thing to say is that we only deal with proven songs, right? So all of the songs that are in our catalog, uh, we have a very small catalog at, you know, approximately a billion and a half dollars, call it a billion pounds invested, of only about 13,000 songs. 2,000 of them are number one songs, 8,000 of them are top 10 songs, and the others are the ones that came with them. So it's a very, very small catalog with a very, very high ratio of success within them, within it. And, you know, those proven songs have very predictable and reliable income. They've, you know, whether you're talking about Sweet Dreams Are Made Of This, or whether you're talking about We Are Family, or a song like Living on a Prayer or Don't Stop Believing. You know, these songs are a part of the fabric of our society and they're being consumed every day. So they have a very, very long, predictable track record of, 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 of revenue. And of course, that, you know, sort of predictable, reliable revenue is exactly why we look to things like gold for investment. And, you know, my... Uh, uh, concept was that in fact these great songs they have all the attributes of gold in terms of the predictability and reliability but in fact they're even better than the likes of gold and oil because they're uncorrelated the revenues are uncorrelated to what's happening in the marketplace so you know if people are living their best lives they're doing it with a soundtrack of music and equally well, if people are experiencing challenges, such as the challenges that we've had over the last five or six months, they're escaping and taking comfort in music. So music is always being consumed. These songs are always earning predictable, reliable income. And as I said, because we are, are only in the business of proven songs, you know, the vast majority of our catalog is something that has a track rate of predictability and reliability over decades in, in most cases. So, Mark, you, you talk about um, predictable, reliable income streams, but surely tastes in music vary from year to year. How can that be, really be the case? 
Well, the taste in music, you know, fashions come and go, as we know, right? So, you know, punk rock might have a three-year run in terms of being, you know, at the center of things. Disco might have, you know, something similar, you know, but but the, the great songs and the great artists stand the test of time. So, you know, if you're a 14-year-old girl and you fell in love with a boy 10 years ago to Beyonce's single ladies put a ring on it, for the first time, you know, that song is going to stay with you when you're 24, when you're 34, when you're 44, when you're 54. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm sure if you were to analyze your personal musical taste, you'll find that the vast majority of them, in terms of the songs that you keep going back to and looking to, to you know, for comfort from or indeed pleasure from are ones that uh, have been a part of, of, of the fabric of your life. Um, and it, it, some of them may have been handed down to you by your parents or your grandparents. You may be handing down songs, and you certainly will be to your children. Um, and that's just the way that we 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 uh, operate as a society. Because the thing about these songs is that they're all about an emotional connection, and that emotional connection is something that stays with us forever. So if you're you're absolutely right. Trends and fads come and go, but great songs, what we call evergreens, whether it's an evergreen artist or whether it's an evergreen song, they stay with us forever. And, and one of the things that's very important to uh, me in terms of our criteria is that um, uh, we, uh, uh, in addition to focusing on what's proven, we also look to the cultural importance of the song and the artist. So when you take those two things into consideration, one, is it proven? Does the data show predictable, reliable income? Has it had extraordinary success? But then when you also add in, is it culturally important? Has it become a part of the fabric of society? You're on to a winner. But just going on on the uncorrelated basis, obviously with the pandemic, et cetera, what happens if people stop buying those monthly streaming subscriptions to the likes of Spotify and Apple Music, considering it's it's really a luxury product? Well, we wouldn't have wished for uh, um, a pandemic to prove our thesis, but the, the pandemic has done exactly that. During the course of this pandemic, people have gone rushing for uh, uh, these great songs that are, that are part of, of the fabric of their life. And indeed, you know, there are, there's a lot of research that's been done and all of them have said, you know, one thing in, in, in particular in common, which is that they've gone looking for comfort and they've gone looking for comfort in those old songs. So songs that we have, such as Journeys Don't Stop Believing or Sister Sledge's Thinking of You that was written by Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards, these, you know, Living on a Prayer, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This by Eurythmics. These songs have all performed unbelievably well, much, much, at much higher levels than they, than even, even than they normally do because people have gone looking for comfort in them. But, you know, to, to go really directly what's at the heart of your point, streaming is the real, uh, uh, context for the success of our fund. Because, you know, what's happened with streaming is that, you know, we had 15 years of technological disruption in the music space um, because people were able to consume music effectively for free via legal downloading. That almost killed the music business. And only, only one good thing for our fund has come out of that, which is that it's left these incredible songs 
at attractive prices. But in the last five years, we've now gone from, sorry, in the last two years, we've now gone from 50 million paid subscribers to music streaming services to 400 million today to what's predicted to be 458 million. Wow, in two, in two years, 15, year. million, 15 million to 400 million in two years on, screen, on streaming. 50 million, 50. five zero yep. to four, yes. Wow. 50 million to 400 million in two years, um, just over two years. And by the end of this year, we'll be at 458 million. And by the end of this decade, there's extensive research from the likes of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, that say that we'll have as many as 2 billion paid subscribers by the end of the decade. And what's happened is that music has gone from being a luxury purchase, as you um, uh, portrayed it, to now very much being a discretion, uh, you know, what used to be a luxury and discretionary purchase, to now being what's very much a utility purchase. And most people would rather, you know, bite off their right arm than not pay their 10 pounds a month for Spotify or for Apple. And that's been demonstrated, you know, um, during the course of, 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 of the pandemic to great degree, um, where in fact streaming, you know, subscriptions for music are up and uh, people, you know, th that have been researched and surveyed have said that, you know, they wouldn't dream of stopping because at, at that 10 pound price point on a monthly basis where you've got, you know, access to everything from Bach to Beethoven, from Chic to Chopin, you can listen where you want, when you want, how you want. Um, on demand, and uh, that that you know price point is one that that as I say has taken it from being a luxury and discretionary purchase. Um, you know the combination of that price point and offering has very much made music now a utility purchase, and that's a massive upside for our fund as well because you know the discount cash flows, the DCFs on which these these assets can be valued, are moving dramatically. Uh, which also has a, a, a very strong effect on, on our net asset value growth um, and, and the value of our catalogs, of course. Let's look a little bit at your selection criteria for the songs and back catalogs that you've bought. Um, it, is it just your taste or is there a sort of quantitative way of selecting these songs? Uh, well, look, it, obviously it begins with my taste. I've, I've, I've uh, been blessed um, to have a 30-odd-year career in music managing some of the finest artists of all time. Um, and, you know, I know uh, uh, my way, of, you know, I, I can't play music or, or sing or write songs, uh, but what I've done extensively is gained a knowledge of it. Um, so I know what's good and what's not good. But at the end of the day, none of that really matters. It, it may, you know, the, the initial approach may start on the basis of my taste, but ultimately the uh, data either wins out or doesn't win out because as I say, we, we only buy proven hit songs and uh, the proof of that is in the data, not in my taste. So when we're buying something, we look at three years to five years worth of income um, and uh, we go through it and we make sure that there's no lumpiness and we get to what we believe is the real baseline income of the song. So if, 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 if the data, you know, demonstrates that the song has predictable, reliable income and 
uh, I believe it's culturally important and I can demonstrate that it's culturally important, then that's generally something that we buy. So when you look at these songs, you know, some of what I've mentioned, like Don't Stop Believing by Journey or Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi or Sweet Dreams Are Made of This by Eurythmics, these are big, big songs that stand the test of time. And not only are they songs that I love and am passionate about, but the data demonstrates that their income is predictable and reliable. Uh, as and a res- we go to work. As a result of that, does that mean that you're only really buying legacy songs, sort of legacy acts, much older songs? Um, no, we, the, the, you know, that obviously is our primary focus. But, you know, if you look at, at you know, I, I talked about the context of all of this being streaming and the growth of streaming, because that's where the real income is coming from. You know, 65% of people that are consuming um, uh, music are focused on catalogs. So these great legacy songs that I'm talking about. Um, but the, and, and, you know, those 65% of people could be listening to anything from Journey to Sheet to Sister Sledge to Eurythmics to Bon Jovi to Santana, um, you know, to all these great artists that are, are, are part of, of, of our catalog. But the other 35% of people that are, are looking at, uh, you know, consuming streaming, music on streaming, they're very much focused on the three or 400 songs of the last five or six years that have been big hits. So there's a very, very high concentration amongst that 35% on a very small number of songs. And we're very well represented in that category. So we own five, you know, four of the top five Billboard songs of the last 10 years, including Mark Ronson's and Bruno Mars' Uptown Funk, Ed Sheeran's Shape of You. You know, we have the best songs by Ariana Grande. The Chainsmokers, who are the number 14 most consumed artist of all time on Spotify. So we're very well represented in the new as well, but nothing, you know, we, we don't buy anything that isn't proven already. So when we bought the Chainsmokers catalog, they were already the number 14 most consumed artist of all time on Spotify. Mm. So, so when you say you buy it, are you buying it directly from the songwriters? So that means that in the future, they're not gaining any more royalties from it? Correct. So we, we, we buy directly from the songwriter, the artist, or the producer. Uh, we don't buy, um, uh, 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 you know, publishing, uh, uh, you know, from a publisher. Um, and uh, uh, at that point in time, um, depending on, because, you know, sometimes we'll buy 50% of an artist's interest or a songwriter's interest in their catalog. Sometimes we'll buy 75%. Sometimes we'll buy 100%. So in, in many cases, they, they retain skin in the game. Um, in other cases, uh, they may be entitled to bonuses based on revenue growth over the next five years. Let's take an example. You, you mentioned Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, and, and Ed Sheeran's probably been one of the most successful artists um, over the past decade. He's had sort of countless hits. W- what's the incentive for him to sell uh, let's say a stake of Shape of You to you, right? So in in this instance, Ed Sheeran's co-writer on Shape of You is Johnny McDade from Snow Patrol, and what we've bought is Johnny McDade's songwriting catalog and Johnny's interest. So Johnny, on the one hand, is an artist in Snow Patrol and doing solo things, but primarily, in his, you know, his main focus is as a songwriter. So his incentive 
is that he's de-risking his future um, by uh, ensuring that that uh, he's getting good value for an incredible set of songs that he's created. Um, he will get bonuses over the next five years based on revenue growth, um, but he's received a good you know lump sum at at at, at at, at, you know, on inception of, of, of the deal. And what he also knows is that he's now in business with a song management company that is going to go to work to get more out of those songs because we have bandwidth that the major companies don't have. The major companies have as much as 20,000 songs per person, whereas we operate on a basis of 500 songs per person. So our ability to be able to put songs in movies, TV commercials, video games, have new artists cover them, et cetera, all the while understanding the ethos on which Johnny and Ed have built their careers and, uh, um, you know, being protective of, 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 of the legacy um, and all of the things that you would expect from someone that comes from artist management, um, first and foremost, that's, these are all important issues to these great songwriters is that, you know, the legacy is important to them. It's, it, you know, the, it's never about the money. You know, the money obviously is an important component, but it's never just about the money. It's always about um, uh, the legacy their ethos, understanding how to work with artists, understanding how to work with, with, with producers. So, you know, when a, when a opportunity to do something with shape of you, um, raises its head, I make sure that, you know, not only is Johnny happy, but I also make sure that Ed and his manager, Stuart are also happy because we want to have a relationship that is a win-win, uh, for all of us and our investors. And the best way to do that is to be cognizant of, of, of what it is that makes an artist work and what's important to the artist. And, you know, I'm, there are, are many competing uh, or people that are trying to compete with us in this space, but with no disrespect to them, most of them are bankers in suits. Um, I'm the only person that's doing this that has come from having made their reputation and their success with artists and songwriters and producers. Are you not competing with record companies themselves, I suppose, in the, in the same vein? Correct. Well, I, well, not at all. Um, you know, the, 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 the record companies and, and the major publishing companies are much more focused on creating new songs and new IP than they are on, on you know, getting the most out of their, their classic catalogs. You know, part of our success is that our total focus is uh, based on on uh, uh, getting the most out of these classic songs that have very very high demand already, and we're just putting an even bigger, you know, amplification or spotlight on them, if you like, and getting more out of them. Um, and you know, I think one of the reasons why our fund has worked, you know, now being a FTSE 250 company, and you know, one of the biggest yielders on the FTSE 250, is because we haven't asked for the investor to, uh, uh, you know, invest in what a great artist or a great songwriter or producer might do in the future, we've asked them to invest in the proven reliable uh, songs that, that have made their careers. I wanted to 
look a little bit of the relationship with Niall Rogers and Dave Stewart. You, you've mentioned quite a few times on, on this interview, um, Chic and Aneurythmics. And, and both of those people are, are on your board. And how much involvement do they have in the selection process? Uh, well, they have a lot of, of, of involvement. You know, we have a, a, a great uh, advisory board. We have a great uh, executive board, but we have a great advisory board that, you know, not only includes uh, Nile and, and Dave, but includes uh, people like Pooh Bear and Stara, who are amongst the leading young songwriters. And, you know, the, 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 the message is very clear to the songwriting community, which is that we take the songwriting community very seriously. We have a motive, which is that we like to make money and we like our, our shareholders to get a great return on their investment. But equally well, we have an ulterior motive, which is to help to be a catalyst to change where the songwriter sits in the economic equation and get the songwriter paid more money. And by having people like Nile and Dave and Pooh Bear and Stara and Georgia Two and Fort and all these other great creators, you know, what you end up with is, is a community that understands that we're very, very serious about songwriters and artists and producers and that we're not like the rest. Interesting. So, so you're almost have a real understanding. you're almost acting as a kind of bastion for, for songwriters there um, because there have been a lot of complaints amongst songwriters um, about the amount of money that they're paid per stream on, on things like Spotify. Without question, we we're, we're a catalyst for change, and, and you know, the, the the there's certainly room for improvement in what the DSPs like Spotify and Apple and Amazon pay the songwriter. But equally well, there's incredible room for improvement in the split that exists between what does recorded music get from Spotify and what does the songwriter and publisher get from Spotify or from Apple. And, and, and what's happened is that the major labels have made uh, or allowed Spotify um, and the DSPs to be made out to be villains in this um, uh, equation. But the truth of it is, is that, then, you know, is, is other than Spotify foolishly trying to appeal the copyright board ruling in America, they really are not the villains of the story. The villains of the story are the major labels that own the major publishing companies. They then prohibit the major publishing companies from advocating for songwriters because they're getting four-fifths of the money on recorded music, an 80% gross margin, a 40% net margin. In general, they own those assets in perpetuity, and therefore they want to push as much of the improvement that's come from streaming in our business towards recorded music where the money is theirs at the expense of the songwriter. Um, and that's, again, something that we're a catalyst you know, for, for change, and we're going to change this system. Um, and, uh, and, and that obviously is not only um, in alignment with, with uh, the songwriting community, but it's also in alignment with our shareholders because if we're getting the songwriters paid more money, then we're getting paid more money for our assets as well. I want us to look at a little bit at the interest you'd had from institutional investors. You've had the likes of Aviva, Schroeder's, and Vestec um, investing in the fund. Um, you, you know, how, how's that going, and how, how do you see that of, growing? The Church of England is Church of England. Church of England is amongst my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Was, was the question how is that going? Yeah. 
we've had tremendous support from the big institutional investors from day one. You know, they, they uh, uh, put us in business with 200 million pounds a little over two years ago. We invested that money quickly in some of the finest songs of all time. We uh, managed those songs better than they've been managed previously. We paid our dividends, and then we did it all over again with another 140 million pounds, another 60 million pounds, another 250 million pounds, and on and on and on to now a point where we're, you know, a billion pound market cap company, a FTSE 250 company, as I say, one of the biggest yielders on the FTSE 250. And, you know, now having entered the FTSE 250, not only do we have um, the great institutional investors that have backed this as well, but we also have the wealth management firms coming through and, uh, uh, you know, via, you know, platforms like Primary Bid, we've had a good offering from the man, you know, a, a, sorry, a good response on our last raise from the man on the streets. And, and, and that feels very good as well. And, and, and that's certainly going to be a big part of our future. Looking forward, where do you think the growth potential is for, for streaming and, well, well, not just streaming, but song royalties going forward? Um, do you think the market's been penetrated well enough in, in perhaps emerging markets, for example? Well, this, you know, this is all upside, of course. So, you know, when we look at the 50 million to 400 million paid subscribers that have come through in the last two years in music streaming services, most of them... Are not part of the data on which we bought the catalogs, um, because one of the big uh, uh, upsides of streaming is that it has given the what used to be the passive consumer who was, you know, happy to listen to music ostensibly for free on the radio or on television, but has never put their hand in their pocket and pulled out a tenor to pay for music. They're now paying 120 pounds a year for music, and this is all new money coming in at you know, hundreds of millions of, you know, times hundreds of millions of people. And the same thing is happening in emerging markets such as India. You know, in India, we've gone from international consumption of music, or I should say consumption of international repertoire being 8% 12 months ago. They may have, you know, heard of our great artists and Western artists and, and songs and stars, but very few people had access prior to streaming now they've got access and, and repertoire, you know, the consumption of international repertoire has gone from 8% to 42% in 12 months alone. China's coming through big. Africa is coming through big. And in the next 10 years, as we get to 2 billion paid subscribers around the world, you know, as much as, as, as a third to half of, of, of those people are going to be coming from emerging markets where we've never seen money before. So, you know, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, Apple went live in an additional 31 countries around the world. And we now suddenly have income on Don't Stop Believing. Last week on Don't Stop Believing, we had 2.7 million streams, just short of 3 million streams around the world. And we're seeing money from places like Congo and Senegal that we never, ever expected to see money on, on, on a song like Don't Stop Believing from. One final question. Um, what's to stop competitors doing the exact same thing that you're doing and buying up songs with a proven track record? Well, the, the, we have competitors that are doing the same thing or trying to do the same thing, but what sets us apart besides the fact that we're you know, a premier-listed FTSE 250 
you know, company is that, you know, my pedigree of being someone that's made their reputation and their success with artists and songwriters and producers, and that not only understands the, the business, but that understands the creative process, understands songwriters' legacy, understands that <laughs> it's an emotional transaction that is not only based on, on, on money, but that is also based on, on ensuring that you're putting your songs into the right hands. Because for these songwriters and artists and producers, these songs are like children to them, right? Children that they've given birth to. So, you know, when they go into a transaction like this, it's effectively like, you know, finding surrogate parents for your children or, or foster parents or godparents for your children. And they want to ensure that their songs are being put into the best hands possible. And I'm the only person doing this, and I've built a formidable team around me as well that has made their reputation and their success, as I say, with artists and songwriters and producers, as opposed to at the expense of artists and songwriters and producers. And because we have and the ulterior motive that I mentioned of wanting to use the leverage of our catalog and our success and our great songs to change where the songwriter sits in the economic equation, we have tremendous, tremendous support from the songwriting community. And as such, we are the, the, the preferred buyer. Mark, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's a pleasure, mate. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's uh, been delightful to speak to you. Schroder's is built on 200 years of experience and expertise. We partner with our clients, constructing innovative products and solutions across private assets and alternatives, solutions, mutual funds, institutional and wealth management. By combining our commitment to active management and focus on sustainability, our strategic capabilities are designed to deliver positive outcomes. With over 5,000 talented staff across 35 locations, we are able to stay close to our clients and understand their needs.